This is the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew, and the beating heart of our church is to ignite a deep longing and hunger for Jesus and His Spirit-driven, Spirit-fueled and initiated formational work in us to form us into the image of Christ for the sake of the world around us. We believe that the heart of Jesus for us is uh, for us to open ourselves up to all of his work and ministry through the Holy Spirit in our lives, not just in, uh, you know, intellectually or cognitively, but to actually experience the full ministry and work of Jesus in us. And the reason is not for our sake, uh, not for just navel gazing, but actually for the sake of the world around us. We are called to embody and become more like Jesus to be formed into his image so that we can carry greater measures of the heart of the Father to the world around us, greater measures of kingdom authority and power, the availability of the kingdom at work in and around us through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we are in this series where we're talking about the Holy Spirit. It's called Foundations because these are really foundational things that should be at the very center of our idea of what it means to be followers of Jesus. This uh, week, before I send you off to this message that was preached live uh, yesterday now here in Niagara, I wanted to just preface this with a few things as usual. And what I love is that these messages are not intended to be a, a static sort of repository of information that can be accessed, but these are a dynamic conversations. And so after the message, after the service on Sunday, I had dialogue with a number of people. Last night, had dialogue with some people. And even this morning in our staff meeting, we had some dialogue about the content of the message. And I wanted to clarify two things specifically. Number one, I did not maybe state this clearly, but we were looking at the New Testament examples, specifically of the word filled in the Greek and how, how those related to the Holy Spirit. So when the word filled was used in reference to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Now I understand, and somebody had mentioned this to me in the afternoon, the first instance of that word being used in reference to the Holy Spirit actually goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, where the Holy Spirit filled, I think it's, uh, I forget his name, Barcelai B something. <laughs> anyway, I don't have my Bible in front of me, but anyway, where the Holy Spirit filled him in order to have the capacity to creatively create everything necessary for the tabernacle. So yes, the Holy Spirit's filling of people actually goes back into the Old Testament, but we were specifically focused on Luke and the New Testament as it relates to the Holy Spirit, how that word is used. Secondly, I did not say this, but this would have been my underlying assumption, I'm not negating or diminishing the reality of the Holy Spirit's ongoing fullness and presence in the life of a follower of Jesus. So as I talked about these specific words, like filled, full, upon, baptize. There's other words even to express the Holy Spirit's interaction with us in our life. I was specifically not referencing the ongoing uh, fullness of the Holy Spirit in the lives of a follower of Jesus. That's where we would use words like sealed and baptized and other words to talk about the Holy Spirit's ongoing presence. So I just wanted to clarify that as I was talking about the scriptures and referencing the scriptures, talking uh, 
about what it means and looks like to be filled with the Spirit, I am not suggesting in any way that the Spirit comes and goes from our life. He is always present. He is given to us as a guarantee. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that we're sealed with Him and He is present in His fullness in our life always as followers of Jesus. He does not come and go, but I do want to acknowledge as the scriptures acknowledge that there are moments and occasions and times where the Holy Spirit, quote unquote, fills us with uh, his presence and his power in unique and um, sort of bigger ways, for lack of a better term. So I just wanted to clarify those things. You can listen to the full teaching and um, hopefully get a better sense for where my heart is on that. But I wanted to just address those two specific things. I'm hoping that like all times and all weeks, um, this content inspires you, provokes you is a better word, provokes you to ignite a deep and deeper hunger and longing for the presence of Jesus in your life, the work and activity uh, and communion of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in your life. I hope that this stirs in you a desire to walk in deeper measures of intimacy and obedience and authority in the name and in the person of Jesus, the person of the Holy Spirit and with the Father as well. Have an amazing week. I'll talk to you soon. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And we are meandering, and I use that word very intentionally because that's what we're doing. We're meandering our way through this larger subject, which we've called foundations, um, this this sort of the foundational principles of the Holy Spirit's work and activity in the kingdom of God and in our lives as followers of Jesus. And um, we don't really have a, we have a general idea of where we want to go, but um, we're just trying to be uh, responsive to where the Holy Spirit leads us. And I want to just debrief with you really quickly um, just what happened at the end of our service last week. If you've been here for a while, I've been mentioning um, my, my, my sort of my lens through which I look at even our gatherings together is shifting. And um, I see this more as a lab class than a lecture hall. The purpose of our gathering and the purpose of the Holy Spirit's interaction with us is to strengthen and edify and equip us. Not for one person to just talk at nauseum sometimes and uh, then for you to go home and just be, you know, have some good thoughts, you know. That's not really, I think what we're seeing is in our church culture is that's not effective and that doesn't bring transformation. The only things that bring transformation are the things you integrate into your whole being. You will not be transformed by intellectual knowledge. You, you have great knowledge of many things, but that doesn't change you. And fundamentally, we are not rational beings. Fundamentally, that's a lie of the enlightenment. We are fundamentally not rational beings. A great example is uh, your marriage, your dating life, your love life. When you first met the love of your life, you were not a rational being. You did things that now maybe you're like, I can't believe I even did that. Like, how did I do that? Because you weren't thinking rationally. Fundamentally, we are driven by the heart. That's the testimony of Scripture. Our mind is vitally important. But we have to combine rational, intellectual life and heart life as the totality of our spiritual life. You are not a walking mind, per se. 
you are driven by the desires that lie deep in your heart. And the scriptures are not opposed to the expression of emotion. They're not opposed to you experiencing the nature and reality of God. Some of you may be more bent toward intellectual thinking, rational thought, which is awesome. That's a part of kind of your contribution in the body. But fundamentally, God is not afraid of emotion. He created it. The devil did not create emotion. It's not his tool to wield however he wants. He's co-opted it. God is the author of your feelings and your emotion and your heart. And his desire is to walk with you into greater measures of just opening that stuff up. And so this, the heart of our gathering together is not just to pass along intellectual knowledge, although hopefully we can do some of that. The heart is that together we experience the reality of the kingdom. So at the end of our service last week, we were talking about tongues and we're going to kind of hover in that general category. Today we're going to talk about the difference between baptism and filling and the Holy Spirit coming upon and stuff like that. But, um, you know, at the end of the service last week, as, as I was uh, closing in prayer, I just uh, inside um, wasn't an audible voice of God. It was just this thought that came to me. And that thought was, Andrew, ask the Holy Spirit in front of everyone if he has a word that he wants to give in tongues with interpretation. So that was the internal thought as I was praying out loud, whatever I was praying. That was the thought that um, came to mind. And usually, um, you know, a pretty good rule of thumb, I find for my own life at least, is when it's something you don't want to do, and you're reluctant to engage in, it's usually God's voice that's leading you. When it pushes you past your comfort zones and into sort of risk-taking faith, which is, you cannot have faith without risk, um, that's usually, I'm learning, God at work. Uh, when it's comfortable and I can manage it and control it and I have everything sorted out perfectly, Often that's because it's just Andrew that's at work. And so that's, that's what I sense. So, so we, we, during that prayer time, we paused and I prayed that out loud. Holy Spirit, is there a word that you'd like to give in tongues? And would you give interpretation to that? And then we waited. And it seemed like about an hour that we waited. It was probably like 10 seconds or 15 seconds. It seemed like a long time. And then uh, a woman here, Brenda, not Brenda Drost, not Brenda D, Brenda B, she reluctantly put her hand up. I didn't even see it at first because I started to sweat at this point. Like, what are we doing? You're, you're wrecking the church with this and all of this stuff. Anyway, um, I'm working through those things. But um, so she, Brenda reluctantly put her hand up. Now, I want you to know we, we've, we've never done it like this. I've never tried to steward that. We've never done that. And uh, Brenda had never done that in public. And so um, I, to me, these are the, the markings of the Spirit of God when things just come about with humility and trembling and the fear of the Lord and like, I don't know what's going to happen here. I'm not overconfident with this and I'm not brimming with faith right now. I'm just very tepidly going to walk into this. And so uh, Brenda gave a word in tongues and she mentioned to us after the, the way it sounded was very different than it sounds in her personal prayer language. That what was coming out was not uh, business as usual for lack of a better term. And uh, so she finished, and then we asked the Holy Spirit if he had an interpretation, and then we waited. And it seemed like a long time. Again, it was probably just a few seconds. And uh, we had a few people mention that they, you know, again, rather reluctantly would want to come up and share um, 
what they believed the interpretation was. And one uh, um, was a partial, she said a partial interpretation, and it actually was rooted in, in Joel chapter 2, I think, um, the scripture about rending your hearts. Marilyn had an interpretation, and that interpretation, you can actually go on our podcast. We added this, and I've given descriptions and filled in the blanks online just to kind of walk people through, but Marilyn had an interpretation. And then we prayed, and the service ended. Um, what you don't know, I don't know if Mike is here. Are you here, Mike? Yes. Would you be willing? I, I'm, I'm absolutely putting you on the spot right now. But Mike came after. We were doing some prayer, and he and my dad came, and he said, hey, I just I want to encourage you with something. And this was super encouraging to me, Mike. So would you be willing to share with us what you shared with me about that? I was afraid you were going to ask me to do this. <laughs> and the Lord being so good had already been ministering to my heart that you were going to. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, as we, were, uh, as we were waiting on God, and this was something being my Pentecostal background, uh, was something that I, uh, you know, had experienced before in terms of hearing, but uh, not being on the end of it where you were getting the interpretation. And I thought, oh no, it's coming. But at the same time, you know, God's working in, in your heart and uh, I'm listening and I'm hearing it before the tongues. And, uh, and then I thought, oh, I can't go, I can't go up there. Uh, and, and then what happened is, is we had the, the, the two or maybe it was three come and share. And I thought, this is exactly what I was hearing before anything happened. And, uh, you know, um, the, I heard it a little bit different, but in essence, it was the same, just like you talked about. And um, the whole submission and rend your hearts. And then, um, you know, about uh, uh, opening ourselves up to God and being led by him. And, and, and you know, it, it really connected in my heart with uh, our neighbors are depending on it. Our neighbors are depending on it. And the whole aspect of, uh, you know, really seeking the gifts uh, because that's what God wants us to do, and there's a great freedom in that. And so I just came in and told Andrew, basically, uh, yeah, what, what I heard was exactly what, uh, what I was hearing before. So Amazing. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, super encouraging. Um, super encouraging. And then uh, uh, Brenda had mentioned, I won't tell the story unless you'd like to come and share it, Brenda, but no. Just the fruit of that even later that afternoon in her own life. And so Paul says that the purpose of the use of the Spirit's gifting and power is to build up and to edify. And when you apply that sort of rubric to this, that's what happened. The whole body was able to be encouraged and strengthened, and it had nothing to do with a pre-rehearsed anything. It was just responsiveness to the Holy Spirit's leading. I want to encourage you again, as a church, we want to learn to steward the presence of God. Now, the presence of God, I believe, is generative. He doesn't work in formulas, and he doesn't work in boxes that are neatly arranged. And so one of the things we, we will have to, and I'm just saying this out loud for you and for me, that we will have to do is guard ourselves against systematizing and mythologizing the move of the Spirit. It doesn't mean that every week the same thing has to happen in the same way. We're not going after the gift. We're setting our heart and our intention on walking in intimacy with Jesus. The Holy Spirit is always directing to Jesus. He's always, he's not, he's not shining the light on himself. He's always, always, always directing us back to Jesus. And I, we want to have the culture here and the freedom to allow him to work, but not be prescriptive as we gather together. Like prescriptive meaning, oh, at this point in the service, 
somebody always stands up and gives uh, you know, a prophetic word or a tongue or whatever. We don't want to walk in with this sort of already understood idea of what's going to happen. We want to walk in and ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that is on your heart today? My prayer for you and my prayer for these moments uh, every week is, Holy Spirit, how do I serve your heart for your people today? What does that look like? Well, I don't know. It doesn't always look the same. So we want to build a culture where we're open to everything he wants to do, but also where one where we're not, we're not sort of leading in just with stuff that's coming from human thought or human initiative. And uh, we want to continue to do that as best we can, knowing that we're stumbling through that, and we will continue to stumble through that, and that's okay. Jesus is not intimidated by our stumbling or our failures in any way. He doesn't recoil and retract himself from us when we stumble, when we fail. He enters into those places. And so as a church, we want to continue to press into those awkward places to risk more than we're willing to sometimes in order to see the Holy Spirit move and who knows what he'll do. But I think that our calling, while it's not to be prescriptive on exactly what the Holy Spirit will do at, you know, 1057 every Sunday morning, our calling is not to be prescriptive, but it is to live with a heightened anticipation of the Spirit's generative work and activity. Like at any moment, he can do whatever he wants to do. He can heal. He can deliver a prophetic word through someone. He can do those things. So we want to live with the anticipation that that is actually the life of the Spirit. And it's interesting, you know, one of the, the sort of the preeminent New Testament scholar as it relates to the things of the Spirit is Gordon Fee. And he's written a huge volume called God's Empowering Presence, and it's every instance in Paul's writing where the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And he says something interesting in this book um, that the experience of the Corinthian church was not an anomaly within the broader Christian community. Sometimes people that really struggle with the gifts and really struggle with uh, sort of the what, what some people term the power or the sign gifts, sometimes those people um, would make a case that the Corinthian church was super dysfunctional. It was an anomaly, and Paul was trying to clamp down on it. But actually, when you study Paul's letters, the letters to the Thessalonians and others, you realize every one of his churches is brimming with spirit life, and stuff is happening all over the place and all the time. And so Paul's writing, even in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, again, his writing in the, the context is not to lay down this ironclad sort of uh, um, teaching on every spiritual gift and its function and its purpose. He's actually responding correctively to a church that's just kind of it's just kind of going for it in every direction and it's become unhealthy. And so he lays boundaries down, but 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, even Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, these are not systematic doctrines and theologies of every gift and every you know, bit of information about. It's just Paul speaking reflectively into the life of the church. Hey, this is what's going on. He's not setting out to teach them everything they need to know. He's just responding to what's actually happening around him. And so that's why we, I'm a bit hesitant in teaching the gifts because we don't have a locked down systematic theology about them that just, we can just create categories um, that seem right to us. There are no categories biblically. There are general kind of groupings, but there's no categories like we've created. And so Paul is more interested in cultivating 
God's empowering presence among his people and a life of breathing in and out with the spirit of God in your normal Christian life. That's his heart. He's interested in stirring and cultivating a culture that is living in active daily responsiveness to the Holy Spirit's activity. In scripture, that comes with different language. And we're gonna do our best here to unpack a few things. Now, I'll say the same thing I said last week. We're gonna step into very tender territory here. So remember how you feel about me right now. I'm the good guy. I'm not trying to offend you or, or you know, insult you or the, I'm not trying to undermine the things that have happened in your past. We are going to step into some definitions and language, biblical language used to describe what happens when the Holy Spirit intermingles with us. Some of this, what I say, on the surface level, you may find offense to. Remember, you love me and we're going to be okay at the end of this. I'm presenting to you gently this as I work this through. If you've been here a while, you know our church is kind of rooted in three things that we believe will help form us into the image of Christ. Number one is coming under Scripture. That's what we're going to do here. And we're going to see what Scripture has to say about some of the specific ways the Holy Spirit interacts with us. The first terminology that we're going to look at is Luke's use of the word filled. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I'm indebted to Jack Deere for a lot of this teaching, but we're going to walk through. If I butcher it, you can listen to his podcast. Um, but Luke chapter 1, I've been um, just, man, this has been really rocking me over the last little while. Luke chapter 1, we are introduced. There's three people in Luke that Luke says are filled with the Spirit. Just three. There's five references in Acts to that word. Now again, here's what I'm going to say about that. Luke, uh, number one, he's a doctor. He's intelligent. He's not using words just randomly, just throwing them out there. It'd be like, uh, I won't give an example, but he's not doing that. When he's using a word, he's got a very specific reason for using that word. So the Greek word we're going to look at for filled is very specific with Luke. Now there's other descriptions that talk about the Holy Spirit's activity with us. We're not going to look at them yet. And so a lesson for you in how to do like a biblical word study, as you look at one specific word, and then you go and you find every instance of that one word. You don't start combining other thoughts and ideas yet. You go to Scripture and you say, God, how is this used across the breadth of Scripture? Today we're specifically looking at how this Greek word is used in the context of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So I know that the Holy Spirit is uh, talked about in scriptures coming upon, that we receive him. Um, words like baptism and being full of and anointed, they're all present and they're all valid. But we're going to stick to this right now and try and find out from Luke what is going on as he's describing what the filling of the Spirit actually is. All right, Luke chapter 1. This is the birth story of John the Baptist. All right? So John the Baptist's father, Zachariah, and his mother, Elizabeth, are faithful followers of Jesus. Uh, Zachariah is a, a priest, and um, it serves in the temple regularly, but they are well along in years and have been barren. They've been unable to have children. An angel visits Zechariah, uh, and we pick this up at verse 11, chapter 1. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. 
But the angel said, don't be afraid. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice in his birth for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. So here's the key. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. So this is the first instance of where Luke uses this term. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's jump further on in the first chapter of Luke. And of course, Zachariah doesn't quite believe the angel. He's like, well, how could this happen? And the angel's like, you're a dummy. I'm sure that's maybe not a biblical exact translation of that, but he's like, you're going to be, uh, all right, if you're going to say something that dumb, then you're not going to be able to talk for nine months while your wife is pregnant. That's my version. This is Andrew's un, uneducated translation. Um, and so uh, Zechariah then is mute for nine months while his wife is pregnant. During that time, uh, the angel Gabriel visits Mary, the mother of Jesus. And uh, you've probably heard that story before. After that, there's a meeting between Elizabeth and Mary. So let's pick it up in uh, verse, what is that, 39. A few days later, Married Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the town and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her. So in utero, Elizabeth's child leaped within her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So occurrence number two of this very particular Greek word here. It continues on, and I'm going to move forward, and we're just going to read this next reference. And we're near the end of chapter 1. The third person to be filled with the Spirit in Luke. So we've had John the Baptist filled with the Spirit in the womb. Okay, we've had Elizabeth, his mother, filled with the Spirit, and now third, Zechariah. So when the birth happens of John the Baptist, they assume that his name will be Zechariah. Elizabeth says, no, he's going to be John, and her family's like, what are you talking about? You don't name your kids some random name. You name them after your husband. Like, and so they ask Zechariah, what's his name? And Zechariah writes on a tablet and said, his name will be John. When that happens, his voice box supernaturally starts working again. Then this is what is written about him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. And he's got this long prophecy here. So three occurrences. These are the only three in the whole book of Luke. These are the only three that Luke mentions um, outside of the book of Acts. Three occurrences here of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what is taking place in this story? What's happening in these places? What is not happening that we would assume might happen when you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Hayden, I'm going to get you to throw up this first, not to throw up. I'm going to get you to just put up <laughs> this first uh, image on here, okay? So, uh, this Greek word pimplomi is to fill or fill with. In Luke's writing, we've read these ones. So what are the common features of what happens when the Holy Spirit fills a person according to Luke? Number one, there is prophetic revelation of the identity of Jesus Christ. So there is a prophetic revelation that the baby inside the womb has when Mary shows up and these two babies, I don't know how this happens, but these two babies, John recognizes that the Messiah is in his aunt's womb. 
his mom's cousin. I don't know what you would call that. Anyway, there is a prophetic revelation from this child in utero that the Messiah is present. It's an unveiling of Jesus and his reality. This, as we get into Acts, we're going to talk about these second two. What happens when Zechariah is filled with the Spirit? He prophetically speaks. And what does he speak? He brings revelation that the Messiah has come and God's plan for redemption is about to unfold on the earth. What happens when Elizabeth is filled? She brings testimony about Jesus. So all three of these cases, the, the common marker of these is a prophetic revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's go now to the book of Acts. Like I said, there's five. We're quickly going to walk through these. All right, so turn over a little bit. Uh, one, two books to the book of Acts. We're going to just look at how Luke describes the filling of the Spirit in these. Acts 2, we've already read this a little bit, but... Um, we're going to read this again today. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven. So, sorry, I'll, I'll read verse one. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave this ability. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I'm not going to re-mention this, but that's the first instance in Acts. Let's turn over to Acts 4, verse 8. This is another situation. Um, remember in the Gospels when Jesus was instructing his disciples, hey, when you're brought before of judges and rulers and authorities, when you're dragged into court, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit is going to actually give you the words to say. This is the first fulfillment of that that we're about to step into. So Acts 4, 8, uh, Peter has now been brought before the religious leaders because he's healed someone and they're threatened by him. They bring him before uh, themselves and they say, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Uh, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he goes on a long indictment of, of who Jesus is and what they've done to him. Okay? Next one, Acts 4.31. Now, Peter's been released from jail Everybody's been praying for him. They're meeting together again, and persecution is starting, and it's ramping up. And they have a, a, a gathering point together, and they begin to pray together. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God, O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. So they go on this prayer and then down further, uh, they say, give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. So we're starting to see some similarities now to what was taking place when the Holy Spirit was filling them. Okay, we're going to keep going here. 917. All right, and this is how you would just do a biblical word study. You just start walking through them all and start observing what is happening here. What's common? What's not happening? Again, especially in this area, I want to be so sensitive. I am in no way rejecting the genuine encounters you've had with the Holy Spirit in your life. I'm in no way rejecting those. I'm calling us to have a sharpened 
biblical common language with how we talk about the Spirit's interaction with us. And to do that, we need to come back to Scripture, not just sort of um, have unique individual uh, definitions of things. So 917. Um, now we're into uh, Saul, his conversion to Paul. After the road on uh, the Damascus Road experience, he's blinded. And there is a man of God named Ananias, and the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says this. Uh, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this, uh, we're not sure if that was like happened then or if Ananias is talking about what is about to happen, but it's clearly talking about Saul being filled with the Spirit. Last one in Acts 13, 9. Okay. And this is Paul's first missionary journey. Again, there's a clue right there as to what is common between all of these things. Um, I'll just read this. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. Key clue. But Elymas, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. He looked at the sorcerer in the eye, then he said, you son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, the enemy of all that is good. Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Very key phrase there. Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for a time. Instantly, the mist and darkness came over the man's eyes and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer. So get this, why did he become a believer? For he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. So we see now, these are the only five examples in Acts and three in Luke where this word filled with the Spirit is used in Scripture. This is it. This is our reference point. So what are the common things that we see? Again, this filling of the Spirit was for the purpose of bringing prophetic revelation and evangelistic teaching of Jesus to a hostile audience. The filling of the Spirit happened so that those who were filled could bring witness to who Jesus is, what he's done, and break through the spiritual barriers, the blinding of the enemy of God that would inhibit people from clearly hearing about Jesus. That is the context of all of these examples of what Luke uses when he says, be filled with the Spirit. The other thing I want you to note is this filling is temporary in nature. So Paul, Peter, the others are repeatedly filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled in Acts chapter 2. 
Then they're filled again in Acts chapter 4. There is a repeated filling of the Spirit. And in some ways, the, the, the pattern that we see in Scripture here is not that the Holy Spirit has, is sent to fill you indefinitely with power for the life of the kingdom. The Holy Spirit is sent and continues to want to fill you for the divine assignments that he has for you in the moment. So the way that Luke uses this word filled, this is not, hey, I received this filling. Now I've been leveled up spiritually from now till kingdom come. And I'm now operating continually in greater measures of authority and power in the spirit. That's not what we see in these. This is a temporary endowment of the spirit's power but not meant to be a permanent power sort of source that you now rely on for the rest of your Christian life. And this is where myself included, so many of us have gotten things so backwards. Again, I am in no way undermining or belittling or rejecting the legitimate encounters you've had with the Spirit of God. We've, we validate those. We believe that he does that. But he did not fill you once to leave you in that spot for the rest of your life. If all we do is keep coming back to this date that we were, quote unquote, baptized in the Spirit, and we don't cultivate a life where we're walking in intimacy and obedience and submission to him so the Holy Spirit would need to fill us again, empower us for his present now work, then we've missed the boat. And you're operating, as my dad would say, you're, you're operating with stale bread. You're eating stale, rotten bread. The Holy Spirit doesn't just come and empower you for Christian life and up the ante a little bit and just kind of let you then like, oh, you know, Andrew, you went from a level five to a level seven. There you go. Have a nice day. Carry on, right? Like that's not what is happening in these scriptures. In these scriptures, the followers of Jesus are stepping in radical faith and trust into places and situations where they are totally dependent on the Holy Spirit's life, on his gifting and his power. They're not even asking to be filled. You notice in Acts 4, they're not saying, come fill us. They're saying, give us boldness. Stretch out your hand with signs and wonders and miracles. Let us be the kind of people who are willing to step into dark places and bring your kingdom. And when you do it, the Holy Spirit is saying, hey guys, key moment here. You're going to need my filling. But if we never step across that threshold, if you never risk something for the body of Christ and for the kingdom of God on the earth, why would you ever need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It's not just for your own personal devotional life. The power of God is available for the advancement of the kingdom of God because the whole kingdom is available and he wants those trapped in brokenness and in bondage and in darkness to receive the truth. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon us when we step out of our comfort zones and into dangerous places for the kingdom of God fills us with power, but doesn't leave us there like we can coast then. We need his power tomorrow and on Wednesday and Thursday. You need it in your office every day. You need it in your schools and in your workplaces, in your relationships, in your family. I need it in my home every day. I cannot rely on what the Spirit did yesterday in order to properly lead my family tomorrow. I can't. And so this use of this word in the Greek... Luke is very specific. Again, I am not challenging whether you've had powerful encounters with the Spirit. I'm not challenging that. I'm just challenging the way we think about it. Let's come back to Scripture and wrestle with these things. Let's just weigh them out. I've been wrestling. like This, this, this breaks apart my paradigm a little bit. 
It challenges my thinking. All right, we're going to move quicker for these next ones. The next one is the adjectival version of this, the adjective, which is to be full. So it's another word that Luke uses. All right, this word is only found three times with relation to the Holy Spirit, three times in Scripture. Luke 4.1. Let's just turn there real quick. Luke 4.1. So this is after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Or this is before, sorry. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, after baptism... Excuse me. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Okay? Stephen, Acts 6 5. We'll just jump back in there for one second. Stephen, by the way, if there's anyone, um, you know, aside from Jesus and Peter and Paul and whatnot, that you would want to emulate, Stephen is Luke's. Luke's archetype of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Stephen is given by far the longest, most detailed treatment of his character and how the Spirit of God worked through him. So Acts 6, verse 5. So uh, they call a meeting of all the believers and they say, we need some help in administering sort of what God is doing all around us. It says in verse 5, these seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them and laid their hands on them. Oh, sorry, uh, I'm going to back up. So, um, brothers, select seven men who are well respected and are full of the Spirit and wisdom. Wisdom is just the ability to lead life well, actually, a great definition for wisdom is the ability to hear, see, and respond to life in the way that God would. So it's wisdom is the ability to hear from God about what's going on in life, to see and evaluate what's happening and then respond to it from God's perspective. That's wisdom. To see or hear, evaluate, and then act as though God were acting himself. That's wisdom. But they also need people who are not just wise. They need people full of the Spirit. Acts 7.55 is also about Stephen. And then Barnabas is the third one that is described being full. So this word full is more flexible than filled, the verb form. It's usually a character description, meaning uh, someone whose life is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. But this being full of the Spirit, as Luke is using it, is not only having great character, but actually living according to the Spirit's empowering presence and work. It's actually not just having solid, you know, the fruit of the Spirit going on in your life, but accessing the fullness of the power of the Spirit in your life. Luke here too, uh, in these examples, would be using this in a repeated fashion. So this can be a description of the empowering of the Spirit in someone's life meaning to be full of the Spirit. That's what uh, John says, that Jesus was full of the Spirit beyond measure. He's the only one that could actually, his character could sustain the Spirit's beyond measure presence in his life. We, we don't have the character to sustain that. And so that's what it means to be full of the Spirit according to Luke. I want to just make a note here. Probably the most contentious one is coming up next. And that's 
baptism. What does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit? So let's just throw that one up. And again, you love me and appreciate me and appreciate my heart and all of this stuff. Um, I, again, would not question encounters you've had with the Spirit. This is just a humble attempt for us to create a common lexicon, a common language. So that word baptizo means to immerse, dip in water. And it's used uh, just a few times in the New Testament. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are all references to the same thing where John the Baptist is talking about the ministry of Jesus, that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So that's the, that's the reference. That's the only reference to being baptized in the Spirit in the Gospels. I want you just to notice, because I, 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 I have my own ways of talking that are rooted in just how I've always talked. And so I don't get this right all the time. It's not like we're going for like perfection here. Um, but notice how it, Jesus is the baptizer, not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is never the baptizer in Scripture. It's always Jesus baptizing in the Spirit. The baptism in the Spirit that is being referenced in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the immersion into the life of the kingdom. This is your entrance into the body of Christ that's being referenced here. Acts 1 verse 5, this is Jesus now talking about uh, this, and Luke is making reference uh, to that. So this is Jesus. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is making reference to this baptism uh, that they will be, sorry, I read the wrong verse again. Maybe this is, a, this is like a clear, Andrew, get the stinking reading glasses. All right. Um, I'm still a bit reluctant. So uh, this is Jesus. Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. All right, that's the only reference in Acts to the Holy Spirit baptizing. Then we have uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. And uh, this is... Paul teaching to the Corinthians. We've read this in the last little while, but this is uh, what Paul says. We have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. All right, so question, who's doing the baptizing? Answer is Jesus in here. Um, so the big question that we wrestle with in church life um, if you come from a Pentecostal background or a classical Pentecostal, you, you would say, yes, but the Spirit's baptism is a subsequent work of the Spirit. And I, I would fully affirm, like we've talked about, there are many subsequent works of the Spirit in our life. There are. And his, the heart of God is to pour out the Holy Spirit subsequently, like in your life tomorrow, and then the next day, and then the next day. The question is, what do we call that? My humble opinion, although this is not a hill I'm going to die on, my humble opinion is that's what Luke is talking about, what it means to be filled with the Spirit or full of the Spirit. To talk, uh, use the word baptism specifically, the only reference to baptism where tongues are present is in Acts 2. So that's the only reference where tongues are present. So for us to build a whole structured theology on that one passage, when we have several others that talk about the presence and filling and work of the Spirit, filling of the Spirit without tongues present, would just lead me to say, let's be cautious about how strongly we lean into our assertion that the baptism of the Spirit must require tongues to come with it. As a church, again, we believe in the gift of tongues. We practiced it last week. But it would not be my conviction 
that tongues are the necessary evidence of the Holy Spirit's activity and presence in someone's life. They may be present, but in every other instance that we read about the Holy Spirit filling the disciples and the apostles, tongues are not mentioned. So we have to just hold that intention. And again, we're not talking about the validity of what you've experienced. We're just talking about how do we, how do we talk well about this as a church even. When we talk about things and when we use words, let's have a common lectionary with those things. So here's how I'll land the plane with this um, this morning. There's other passages that we could talk about the Holy Spirit coming upon people. And some of these words are interchangeable. Uh, some are more flexible than others. But um, Luke is very specific with how he uses language. And at the end of the day, our heart is that uh, we become a people who are not necessarily fighting over language and over what to call something. That's not my heart in this at all. But people who are together pursuing God's empowering presence for our life. People together who are walking in the kind of intimacy and obedience that would require the Spirit to fill us in new and powerful ways. People who are willing to give prophetic testimony to Jesus Christ in hostile and dark places. That's what I want us to see. As a church, it's not even about building services where super cool things happen. It's actually about what happens in your life, in your home, Monday to Saturday. Our heart is that increasingly you become a man or a woman who's walking dependent on the Holy Spirit's gifts and power for your everyday real life. I, would, I, I can't wait for the day. I would, this, is, this is our dream. Not that we build a big church with, that's recognized as one of those spirit churches, but that this more would be happening out in our community, in your homes and in your neighborhoods through the week than ever happens in here on a Sunday morning. We don't want to build a culture where it's like, come and see the show. What's the Holy Spirit going to do? We want to build a culture where you're edified and empowered and built up here so that as you walk back into the real life you live, you're carrying and, and more dependent and aware of the Holy Spirit, living in total dependence on him for the stuff you need in real life. That's our heart. My heart is to begin to hear stories of how God is breaking through in your families and in your schools and in your workplaces. I, I can't wait to hear stories of people being healed and set free and given hope and meeting Jesus, not because something cool happened here, but because we're just learning to walk this out in our everyday life. And so my prayer like collectively, can we be a church that prays like they did in Acts 4? Give us boldness. This is totally reframing my thoughts on evangelism even, which I've had a shaky past with. <laughs> my dad has a gift of evangelism. I don't. And I've lived in kind of fear of that a lot. But when I read it through this lens, I go, man, I, I want to be in those places where it has to be the Holy Spirit where I'm actually walking into dark places and going, Holy Spirit, give me boldness. Would you stretch out your hand to heal and restore and bring freedom to those that I'm rubbing shoulders with today? Let's pray. Why don't you stand? So we just submit all these things to you, Jesus. Uh, I, I just submit to you my own understanding of Scripture. Um, we just yield ourselves to you and humble ourselves before you. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, more than learning Greek words that really mean nothing to us, we're, I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would awaken us 
to the availability of your presence in our life. And not only the availability of your presence, but our need to live dependent on you. Would you stir up and fan into flame in each person under the sound of my voice right now, Holy Spirit, stir up a deep hunger and longing for Jesus. And we're going to pray just like they did in Acts 4. Father, would you recognize what's happening in our spheres of influence in the world around us and give us great boldness in declaring the goodness and the righteousness of your kingdom, Jesus? Would you give us boldness and would you stretch out your hand and perform miracles, signs and wonders that testify to your power and your life and your goodness. Holy Spirit, we just say that we need you. And we're sorry for the ways even this week we've grieved you by just shutting you out of different places in our life. We're sorry for the times when we just took control into our own hands and were determined to just do what we wanted. We submit our lives to you again today. We love you. Amen.